Okay, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is... Well, you know what my name is. Anyway, so a couple things before we start. First, on the website, there's now a talkback feature where you can submit comments or questions via a sort of voicemail system. So if you'd like to hear your voice on air during the Q&A episode that's coming up, or if you'd just like to sing me a song, you can do it at the website. It's a handy little button on the right that says, Talk to the BHP. You really can't miss it. Second, the Q&A is coming up, so send me your questions. They can be on anything, really. Want to know what I listen to while I'm writing? Want to know what my process is putting together these episodes? Or do you want to know who would win in a mud wrestling match between Oliver Cromwell and Sir Thomas More? Well, now's your chance to ask. Third, I've sent out a bunch of stickers and buttons by this point. And I was thinking that a page on the site showing how you're sporting BHP stuff could be kind of fun. So if you're interested, can you take a photo or two of you with BHP material and I'll put them up on the site. You can just email them to me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. All right, history. So I'm going to wrap up the discussion of the development of regional cultures with a talk on an omnipresent yet often ignored influence on basically all of human development. This subject is generally ignored in most disciplines, and it's definitely undervalued unfairly in many treatises on history. I speak, of course, of nature. You really cannot escape nature. It's going to affect you. Sure, you can push back against the forests with the axe and the plow. You can create farmland and settlements. You can eliminate local vegetation and create grazing lands for your herds. But the environment is still there, waiting, and it will come racing right back to retake it the second you let your guard down. In the Roman period, we saw some fairly extensive economic exploitation of the environment, with roads, large industrialized farmlands, Roman-style towns, quarries, mines, and all manner of other necessities of Roman life. The land, which was already transformed into an agrarian landscape under the Celts and the prehistoric Britons, had pushed even farther towards the human end of the spectrum. And then everything collapsed. Nature didn't miss a beat. It came rushing back in. Well, it came rushing back in on a geological timescale. And we see evidence of farmlands turning into scrub, towns being reclaimed by the environment, and things taking on something of a 12 monkeys turn. At least, post-virus 12 Monkeys. And if you didn't catch that reference, you really should watch that movie. It's classic. Anyway, so we're seeing the erosion of human-made features. From towns to ditches. All of it's eroding. And there's also a general reforestation that spread through quite a few areas that were rather industrial only 100 years earlier. Now, why bother telling you about this, other than as a way to mention a film that features Brad Pitt being a total fruitcake? Well, because this would have had an enormous impact on the development of those regional cultures that we've been speaking about. Hell, nature probably had as much of an impact upon the development of culture as the cool kids in Anglo-Saxon school did. So let's imagine what the land must have looked like. You had natural boundaries all over the place, which, this show being what it is, will get discussed. But in addition to that, you had a return of the wild. Communities that would have been easily linked were now separated by growing wild spaces. Sure, there were still Roman roads, but they were in disrepair. And as we talked about in the travel episode, they were becoming a bit dodgy thanks to thieves, bandits, and hedgehogs. And you might remember that we also talked about the Anglo-Saxon opinion of the wild. Specifically, 
that they found it a bit spooky. Now add to that things that would inhibit the free flow of travel between areas, like mountainous regions, estuaries, rivers, and the M25. Going from one village to another would have been quite an undertaking, wouldn't it? And it's not surprising that Britain became a land of small places when you consider the constricting effect that the landscape would have had upon the sub-Roman population. It would just be much easier, and frankly more logical, to form small municipalities, if we can even use that term, rather than large kingdoms. Now, building upon my apocalyptic image that I've been painting for you, something else happened at around this point in history. At around 536 CE, there was a huge dust cloud, and things got really dim. And cold. And that cold lasted for about a decade. Remember back when I talked about the Icelandic volcano Hekla and how it blew in 1159 BCE? And then crops started to fail and all of a sudden the Iron Age Britons were essentially trading in their plowshares for swords. When crops fail over a significant portion of time, it does seem like there's a trend towards violence. Well, here we have another extreme environmental change that would have impacted our story. Now, was it caused by a volcano like in 1159 BCE? We don't know right now. It could have been, but it also might have been caused by an object from space impacting the Earth, which is a subject of much debate right now thanks to that massive meteor that exploded over Russia. Or there are even theorists who think that it might have been due to a comet getting too close to the Earth. But whatever it was, we have multiple sources as well as support from ice core samples that tell us that there was an enormous dust cloud that lasted for about 18 months, and then things stayed unusually cold for about a decade. So that really would have been hell on the growing agricultural economy of Britain. And predictably, that was right around the time that you had Chinerich of Wessex and Ida of Bernicia. And as you recall, they were involved in some battles. Crops failing, and now you have recorded warfare and a change in who controls significant portions of land. Interesting. So it's entirely possible that we're seeing another way that the environment is impacting the development of culture. It could well be connected to the outbreaks of violence and changes in the political structure. Going through this as a thought experiment, it really isn't too hard to imagine how the communities might have dealt with the dust cloud, low levels of light, and the cold snap. Some probably would have tried to acquire the lands of their neighbors if those lands were doing better than their own. Some might have taken up raiding livestock and such. Some might have foraged in the wild places that were probably avoided by their parents' generation. And some probably would have just suffered and starved. To a certain extent, it's not surprising that this era was something of a starting pistol for social stratification and the development of regional cultures. If you were in a position of power, for example, you probably could have weathered the storm, and maybe even added to your power base. But if you weren't in a position of power, well you might find yourself agreeing to hand over land or agreeing to something else unpleasant in order to make it through the winter. Or maybe you and your family just starved, in which case the land was probably seized by someone with resources to make it through the winter. So while the natural environment is creating barriers between the communities, it was probably also helping foster the centralizing of power and wealth in these small communities we've been talking about. Don't forget that this wasn't purely egalitarian, Slavery and other forms of economic oppression and indentured servitude, in a sense, had already been invented by this point. So that kind of sucks. But the advantage of this shift in society is that the centralization was creating larger communities, 
And you had villages coming under the domain of other larger governmental structures. For example, Chinarich, and later Chalin, brought a variety of communities under the domain of Wessex. And what that allows for is a greater level of complexity in the agrarian community, which, providing if it works, can allow for a better level of efficiency. But of course, that requires organization between the communities. And that brings us back to our discussion of kings. You might recall that the early Anglo-Saxon kings would travel around their domain, rather than having a static court where they resided. As they traveled, they would often feast at the homes of prominent members of the communities where they were visiting, and then they'd move on. And of course, the king would be traveling around not just with a collection of nobles, but also with his warband, because, well, it's better to have a warband and not need it, you know? Anyway, so this ties back into the environment again, because, continuing with this thought experiment, those kings, or warlords, or whatever you choose to call them, would need to be traveling around in their domain, ostensibly maintaining the fealty of their subordinate villages, as well as collecting food taxes and that sort of thing, right? Well, that whole thing relied upon the ability of the group to be able to actually travel to those villages. So if you had impassable rivers, dense woods, mountainous regions, or something like that, well, they'd be really tough to reach, and you probably wouldn't want to expand your kingdom into those areas unless you absolutely needed to. And there were occasional reasons why you would need to do that, and we'll get to those later. But in general, if you're looking at a difficult-to-reach territory, you might decide that it's just too much trouble to maintain control over them, right? So there were political motivations for these changing boundaries, and some of that might have been connected to nature. Although not always, it might have just been purely political. But it definitely happened. For example, some communities that were well within the province of Wessex, according to the Chronicle, were still not under West Saxon control until the time of Chalin. And all of these things, politics, fashion, familial ties, prejudice, nature, and a variety of other things, would have been conspiring to create differing cultural bodies that, while still fluid, were having a distinct impact on the development of what would eventually become England. And so you started to have people who were beginning to dress alike, and bury alike, and probably speak and behave alike as well. And that's happening for a variety of reasons. So at last, we're starting to see the beginnings of Bede's Saxons, Angles, and Jutes. So as an example, in the so-called Jutish territory of Kent, we're seeing a distinctly more Frankish flavor to Anglo-Saxon life. Brooches, garnets, and many other bits of clothing started to heavily reflect the Franks, but not exactly. They also had a few aspects of clothing that were Scandinavian in nature. Conversely, in the northern so-called Anglian territories, you're seeing a substantial amount of Norwegian-inspired fashion that had taken its own turn and developed into its own distinctly northern English style over the generations. Meanwhile, the so-called Saxon territories were also doing their own thing. Not because of genetics, but rather because of much harder to define issues of regional cultural development. So we see that all three groups were separated from each other, not just by political boundaries, and in fact, what political boundaries existed were, well, rather soupy. But they were also separated by distinct physical boundaries that were provided by nature, which restricted their access to each other, and also a warlord's ability to easily and reliably visit his subservient territories. And that led to the ethnic communities that we've all grown up hearing about. And I think that should wrap up this section. 
So, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash britishhistory. And you can follow us on Twitter. Just look for at britishpodcast. And there's always the forums. Come join us at the forums. We're at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And you just click get involved and click forums. Oh, and you can also use the talkback feature on the site as well. So, I look forward to hearing your voicemails. All right. Thanks for listening.